right, Union of the Unwanted, back se- September 11th, 2023. Ricky, take it away. What's up? Another episode of the Union of the Unwanted. Of course, like I always remind you guys, we stream these live on Rockfin every other Monday. And then it is premium, but eventually within uh, a couple of days, it's the audio is available everywhere. And within probably a week, I would say it's also available on Odyssey, the video, if you want to watch it there. So please do that. Also, let me remind you guys to also subscribe to everybody's shows that are on the Union of the Unwanted. Uh, we're a big community. We all support each other. I know there's a lot of listeners that listen to this uh, this podcast, but please go out. Also check out everybody else's work. Midnight Mike, obviously Charlie, Sam, myself, but also all the guests that do amazing work, and that's why we invite them to come on. So yes, uh, All, wait, all links ahead. are in the description of every podcast and every video, so check them out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go definitely check out in the show description. The videos and the audio has links to all our guests. We put in a little bit of extra work to make sure that everybody is accounted for. So please also watch the videos because I know sometimes you hear voices, you don't know who they are. Watch the videos so and then you get to get to know the guests and, and whatnot. And this is a, a special episode because it's only a couple days after we got a shout out on uh, JRE, which was pretty cool. Our uh, brother from Different Mother and one of the four horsemen of the Yum Then Wanted. Sam Trump was just on there for a fight companion, and then he mentioned how amazing this show is because we gather all the crazies to talk about the crazy stuff. So, <laughs> but so thank you, Sam, and hopefully he drops in. But uh, if not, thanks, Sam. Thank you, crazies. <laughs> yeah, thank you, crazy. You know that's that's what makes this show special. It's just such a, a amazing and unique combination of researchers and thinkers, and everybody gets along, and everybody shares their knowledge and their input. And uh, I think it's really what makes this show unique. So thank you, everybody who listens every other week and and downloads, and also checks out everybody else's show. And today, of course, it's nine eleven, so we're gonna have to talk about nine eleven because it is a huge event, and there are some people listening who probably weren't born when uh when that event happened and uh but there are some similarities with 9/11 covid jfk okc and uh typically if they're not orchestrated it's and if there if it wasn't a false flag people and governments will use these events for you know their agendas and those are the agendas we'll be talking about today so uh i don't know if you guys want to i know somebody was saying um, maybe we'll start off with uh, talking about where you were when 9-11 happened. I was in high school because I graduated in 03. So <laughs> I was in high school and I'm, I definitely did not understand what was going on at the moment. I, I definitely was like, okay, I know this is big, but I, did, I didn't really grasp it until one of the the regulars on the show, Jason Burmes' uh, documentary and 9-11, A Road to Tyranny, uh, Alex Jones's documentary and design guys and all these documentaries just kind of blew my mind and also some amazing work from uh chris emery who's with us today he's a uh, first time on the union so thanks chris for joining us i'm sure we'll be Thank getting for the invite yeah and we'll, we'll be getting into your documentaries if you guys aren't familiar with him he's from free mind films he did the okc uh bombing documentary a noble lie he did state of mind the psychology of control which a lot of people will know uh richard grove was a big part of that documentary is a f- absolutely amazing documentary and then he did shadow ring narrated by kevin sorbo which is another great documentary and probably some people on the show have were even in that documentary but 
that was my story. Mike, Charlie, you guys want to jump in with your uh, personal stories on 9-11? Then we'll, we'll kind of expand from there. Sure. Um, 22 years ago, I was working in a hospital in the AV room. My job was to film surgeries. So I had access to like, <laughs> TVs and video equipment. Uh, I was listening to Howard Stern when it was going on. So I quickly flipped on the TV just to see the, the initial fire uh, from the uh, the first uh, uh, crash of the plane. And right there, like a couple of other people trailed in because I was only one of the places that had like access to cable and TV. And right there live on TV, saw the second plane crash. And at that point, you know, knew like this is big. We're going to be going to war soon. And I was just clamoring for more and more information. What I remember like going home that night was that there was a line around the block for the gas stations. And it was just insane. I remember like the gas stations that were in my my location, they were jacking the prices and people were still in line. And uh, you didn't know what was going on the next day. It was, um, I was into conspiracies in the UFO realm, not so much in the, the governmental conspiracies. I knew about them, knew about JFK. I was 23, mostly focused on UFO. It wasn't... Uh, until probably 2003, 2004, where I was like, huh, well, there's some things that just aren't adding up the way I thought they did. I was in my late 20s, not in Manhattan, but in Manhattan Beach, California, about as far away as you could be. Got woken up by my roommates, got to come out and watch this. Um, I'd love to say I had it all figured out on that morning, but I didn't. I didn't know but I didn't know. I didn't really under, understand how it all worked. And so it wasn't until the Iraq war sales pitch that I got, I, I started to question, you know, things because it was such a disjointed connection that they're trying to make that just didn't make sense. And you felt like you were getting a sales pitch for a war and it was kind of a shitty one. And it made me start to question everything about that. And that led me down you know, sort of the path to where I am now. I just got back from New York late last night. I was there speaking at a, at a conference put on by Billy Ray Valentine and uh, sponsored by Tony Arterburn at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver to do a 9-11 event. We had, about, we had six speakers there. We live streamed it. It was fantastic. It was great to meet these guys in person. I wish we didn't have to do these conferences you know but you know it's important for this not to become okc jfk like mistakes were made that's in the past who cares you know we have to we you know it requires constant reminder to people that this matters and that this was a huge turning point in the world and and our rights you know people that are like young they don't they always think you had to take off your shoes to get on an airplane and you find that there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government measure right we'll give you your rights back when the threat is over but the threat never ends and so that's that's what 9-11 did to me it woke me up that this entire narrative that they give us is just horseshit Scott. I was in Tuxedo Park, New York. Oh, shit, Ricky, you didn't go. I'm sorry. Or did you? No, you did. You kicked off. Yeah, yeah. I was in Tuxedo Park, New York, which is right across the Tappan Zee Bridge from Manhattan. 
And so we like couldn't see the sky for a little bit. We had a couple, I was working at a Renaissance festival. Um, we, uh, we didn't know it was go. We go, we were on our way to the like corner market to go just get some coffee and something to, to eat in the morning. And we happened to pull up like there's a crowd of people outside. We made it for the, uh, the second plane. Uh, and there were a handful of people from the Renaissance Festival that were like, oh, holy fuck, the government actually did that. And then there were a whole bunch of upstate New Yorkers who saw, you know, the the icons of their city being destroyed by that they didn't know what. And, and so it was just this really weird energy. Um, we the. I remember listening to uh, to a lot of William Cooper like that following week, and, and we had prior, you know, but just kind of trying to revisit and, and trying to to suss out some of the stuff. Um, but man, it was wild how like how obvious they made that they were up to no good. And just how captured and captivated 99.9% of the country was and how invested everyone was immediately in revenge of some kind. And, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start asking questions after we have a sufficient amount of bodies. And that, again, it was upstate New York, right across the bridge from Manhattan. So the, that was, that was most of the energy that I was getting. Scott, what about the Scott Armstrong? He, okay. Yeah. yeah. What's up, guys? <clears throat> um, yeah, I was in high school too. I was o class of 02. So I remember I, I was on the West Coast. I was in Oregon. So it was a little bit earlier in the morning. So I remember very clearly I had just woken up. I was actually, I think I was eating, I really vividly remember eating Raisin Bran. I was eating Raisin Bran cereal, watching the TV. Both towers had been hit. And so, you know, there's the smoke and we're just, I was just sitting there watching it like, whoa, this is crazy. And then the first tower fell. And I'm like, oh, that just blew my mind, right? And then the second tower fell. And uh, of course, like I had no concept or, or context to understand what was going on. I remember going to school and like we were just watching stuff on the TV. Um, and of course, I fell into that camp of, yeah, we got to go get these terrorists. They hate our freedom until about 2010 when I learned about Tower 7. And there you go. And that kind of kicked everything off. And here we are today. I'll, uh, I'll chime in real quick. I was uh, living in Fort Worth. Uh, my wife, ex wife, uh, uh, she was working for TWA, and um, I happened to have the day off. I was working for a small production studio in uh, West uh, Fort Worth, and I um, was just running some errands, came home, and she was crying sitting on the living room couch because she was concerned that some of the girls that she went to flight academy with in St. Louis back in 86, who she knew were flying for United America and were on those planes. And I sat down, and I said, well, what's going on here? And I looked, and I thought, wow, here we go again, Oklahoma City, you know, because by that time I had been already doing uh, research and pre-production for the Oklahoma City documentary for about a year and a half. And I remember calling the uh, Oklahoma City Bombing Investigation Committee, which were four individuals, independent, a millionaire, former state rep. Ricky, you're familiar with the crew. And um, I called them and they said their phone was blowing off off the desk. They, they had so many people calling in their office up in Oklahoma City. 
and because there were so many parallels to it. And I thought, yeah, there's something horribly wrong here. We're not getting the truth. And having worked for CBS for four years, immediately, I didn't believe the stock answer. Uh, that was just that was just pablum uh, thrown at us just to placate us for, you know, two or three hours. Here's the weird thing, guys. Back in January of 2020, this would have been about a month and a half before the lockdown. I, I live here on the West Coast of Florida. I happen to be working for a limousine service based out of Sarasota. And it was a, um, a Saturday afternoon picking up Dr. Condoleezza Rice, of all people, from a private uh, jet strip um, just north of Cape Coral, Florida. And um, I had to take her down, unbeknownst to me, I didn't recognize the address. It was to President Bush's vacation home on Gasparilla Island, which same place where Tucker lives. Uh, he, Tucker uh, Carlson has his home down there. Anyway, so we get to the uh, the estate, and I realized once the gates open and the amount of vehicles in the area, there was Florida State Highway Patrol, Lee County Sheriff, and uh, the Secret Service. And there's Mr. Bush, uh, his wife, and the dog waiting for us. And I'm driving up my black SUV. I get out. Tailgate pops up. He walks over and helps me unload the uh, luggage. And Dr. Rice is already walking into the house to talk to Mrs. Bush. And immediately, I remember, and Ricky, I think uh, this was on our third film. If you've seen Shadow Ring, even on the trailer, I remember being in post-production for probably two hours. We're trying to whittle down that speech that President Bush had given, what, three days after 9-11 at the UN, where it says either you're with us or with your terrorists. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, here I am standing next to the guy in that, that made that speech, and he was in the trailer of our film. It was the most uh, surreal experience, one of the most surreal experiences I ever had. And I did all I could. I just had to bite my lip and not say a word to him. And anyway, so that was the tie-in. And then having have mental recall about the connection to Oklahoma City, there was just all of this stuff coming back. And here I am driving this limo standing next to this guy. Uh, it was it was wild. So that's my kind of long version of my recollections of 9-11. I'm curious to get Tisa's uh, statement on this, because as a Canadian, what was your impression of this uh, on the outside looking in? Okay, well, it's like Charlie's favorite thing in the world to kind of tease me a little bit for being Canadian. So I'm about to blow his mind here. I have dual citizenship. Oh. I was the only American in a Canadian high school at the time. And I had been woken up earlier in that day uh, by my dad after the first plane hit the first tower. And I was kind of just like, okay, fine. And then I went downstairs. And at that point, two of them were on fire. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a pretty big deal. And I remember I was watching it on TV. And my jaw dropped when the building fell because it just didn't make any sense. And I didn't put it all together, obviously, because I was too young for that. But I also had family there. Uh, he was in the tower or just leaving it. And he was able to get away from it. Died a year later of a heart attack on a basketball court. But it's one of those scary things when you have family involved. And everyone in the environment at school where I was at, they were kind of in a daze. They didn't really understand it. They were all kind of just like giving me their sympathies for the fact that it was a very serious event. And they recognized the magnitude and the significance of it. But it was one of those things where the teachers were st still trying to get us to do like our schoolwork and everything. And we're all kind of just sitting there like, uh, no, put the TV on so that, that we can understand what the hell's happening here. Uh, in retrospect, that's not necessarily giving you information. It's just giving you propaganda. But at the same time, uh, in high school, just being a kid, that's, that's really, I had all I had going on my mind, trying to get in contact with family, trying to make sense of reality and moving forward. It was a major catalyst in my development and my awakening because once you understand the reality of 9-11 you understand the reality of how things are actually done 
What about Monica? Yeah, I am. I am a New Yorker, but I wasn't in New York at the time. But I was with a friend of mine I used to work with in banking in New York. We were in Colorado. She was in one room listening on the radio and I was watching TV. We were getting ready to go out and she thought it was a prank, like a morning zoo prank. And I'm watching the buildings like burning. And she's like, what are these guys talking about? But then I saw the buildings fall down and I remember distinctly having three specific thoughts. The first one was they are going to have to resolve this Palestine issue once and for all. Like this is obviously way out of hand. <laughs> there was no, I was completely far from being awake to like the, the reality at all. I thought um, I'm definitely never having children because we're headed towards nuclear war. And so it was, you know, you think of your own position and uh, this was, I didn't have an internet or anything, I guess, because I, my very first thought was how many people died? Like I knew, cause I was in banking. I knew that how I could estimate how many people were in those buildings. And I thought, how does this compare with the death toll of Vietnam? And because, and then like, when you think about it, they did it before people were actually at work. So it could have been 50,000 people, which was around like the initial death toll in Vietnam of like actual, I think, soldiers on the ground, I think, unless that includes like the people who died of suicide or whatever after, but it was like a comparable number. And, um, but it wasn't, it was nowhere near that number. Uh, so like, I remember thinking to try to assess the magnitude of this and I did not realize that it was an inside job until the Boston Marathon bombing, which was in like 2013, because my argument the whole time, I would never even look into when people would say it was an inside job, because I would say, I just, I believe they could do it, but I just don't believe they would do it. Like, I don't believe that they're that evil, that they could be like traitors like that. So when the Boston Marathon bombing happened, and it was very clear, you know, because I don't know how I knew that was what that was all about. Then I realized, oh, they would do it. And therefore they did do it. And we live in the pathocracy that a libertarian might predict because they there's a conflict of interest. If you depend on your security from somebody who sells you security, they're going to make sure you feel insecure. And then the last thing I'll say is I have a brother who, like my family is from New York, super blue collar, and worked on some of those projects, including the World Trade Center. My father used to say he welded in the sixth basement of the World Trade Center. So I asked my brother what he thought, like, surely, you know, like this is an inside job. He's like, I don't know any of that crazy stuff you talk about, whatever. But I will tell you this. When I saw that first building fall, I thought the odds of that happening are like a zillion to one. Like maybe if all the stars align, something like that could happen. There's a problem with this, this and that. Maybe, maybe, maybe. He said when he saw the second building fall, it's like there's absolutely no chance that could really happen. And still, he does not have a, a, a real opinion on whether it was an inside job or not. So that's how strong the barriers are for normies to see the evidence of their own eyes. Yeah, it's really true. Mel, you're a New Yorker. What was your 9-11 experience? Were you in New York at the time? or No, I was actually, I was the lowliest production assistant on a really big movie. So I had to get there at 3 a.m. with the crew. And uh, I um, I never would have been up because I was on the West Coast. And uh, 
I saw it and I couldn't believe it because all my life, all I ever wanted to do was be on Broadway, oddly enough. And I would take the, the bus from Cherry Hill, New Jersey to New York City and I would see those towers and I would always feel like from very young age, 15, 16, and I would feel like I, it was New York. I made it. So the towers meant so much to me. And then I, 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 my dream was to go to NYU. So it was like the towers meant so much driving from Jersey into New York City was the was it was just such a part of my life. And I remember what's crazy is I was on this multi-million dollar movie set with this. I always say to people, in my experience in Hollywood, uh, the worst people are the female executive producers. And uh, and I have to tell you, I was with one that day. And so we saw the first tower. I didn't really believe it at first. It kind of looked like a movie. And then I'm, I'm started like panicking because I was like, I have friends that work at a di multiple different places in there. I, I know a lot of people also like Monica that worked in that area building those buildings. So um, the executive producer, you know, this is early. It's before call time for the actors way, way early. And uh, everyone was said to her, well, are we going to shut down production for the day? And she was like, fuck no. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> what and she was like, i'm sorry to curse and she was like no well you know show must go on and i swear the whole day everyone acted like on that set like it didn't happen mm -hmm. and uh and that is really really true and I, i'll never forget it thinking i'm walking around the whole day thinking why is everyone acting like and they're you know they're actors you know that's the least of it but everyone was really acting on that set like nothing happened it was a very bizarre day for me and uh I'll never forget it, but I'll tell you, I, I I really couldn't believe that this woman. She's a big producer. A lot of she's she goes up on stage and like tells everyone how they should be living with her big moral moral compass. And I tell you right now, I heard her later say to somebody because I was well, I had to follow her around with coffee and stuff. Uh, I heard I heard her say to somebody later, "Well, they should just go and fumigate the entire Middle East," and it just kept going forward. And that was the reaction. And I'll tell you what, the reaction in Hollywood was very nothing. I, and no matter what they say, I'm telling you, the show went on as if nothing happened in, in my in my estimation. So it was shocking. And uh, I but like uh, Monica isn't there. And I, I grew up in and out of New York and certainly went to college there for years. I felt bad that I wasn't there. I felt like I missed out somehow with all my friends that had their stories. I felt and all these years, I always felt like I wished I was there uh that day and and had those stories i have so many friends who had to walk home to brooklyn and and stuff it's crazy but um i'll tell you the inside scoop in uh in hollywood was eh. that's what i saw so it's like weird and sad well there's so many similarities with all these events because the fear is what let people m make not so logical decisions in regards to like hey we can some way link Iraq, which had nothing to do with September 11th, link those two things. And then we just, you know, go ahead with it because we're so afraid. Same thing with like a lot of the COVID uh, regulations and rules and all that stuff. People would kind of joke around about how none of them made any logical sense, but a lot of people would go ahead with it just because they're afraid. And um, so I, I know we didn't hear from Ryan, Miriam uh, and Courtney. So if you guys want to share your personal stories. Mine's a, uh pretty similar to uh charlie's in in the sense that i i mean i was i was not even close to being aware of what the world was like at that point and i i, I was 2001 when i graduated so it was right about that same time so high school ish for me 
And I woke up at the time, just randomly, not because of anything else. I woke up and I walked out and just flipped the TV on. And it was right about the time when, and I actually think that it was just turned it on and it was on every channel, I think, because I forget if I flipped to something in particular. And and, and it was right, at, I think at the point where I, I caught, like after watching for a couple minutes, this, I think it was the the plane, that the second plane that hit. And I've just, at this point, I'm just like, like at first when I see just the, the things, that's smoking building and I'm just like trying to comprehend what you're looking at, like what's happening. And then all of a sudden this hits and I don't even remember. I, it's hard to think about like how I felt about it other than just like what the hell is happening, you know? And I was so, I think it just speaks to the uh, the mindset of the average person. I was so completely, you know, what am I supposed to think about this? You know, what are they telling us? What's the story? And I don't, you know, it wasn't until a long time later that I started to understand, you know, and uh, what exactly this meant in a larger sense. And I don't remember if it was the building seven discussion or even just, the larger narrative that just didn't add up. But I feel like I was always pretty skeptical in a general sense, but it wasn't until much later that I really understood the gravity of the whole thing. But I think that it was, to, to Ricky's point, you know, it's really just the fear that drives people's mindsets, you know, and I think that's obviously leaned into because we all know that emotion kind of circumvents logic and it's very easy to scare people about what's going on. And I think that's part of what it was for me too. You know, you just, it's such a, a feeling of uncertainty. Like at first you're just like, like, I think I forget who all said this, but you flip it on and you're like, this must be a joke or like, this must be like a, like a, you know, invasion alien, you know, what the, the old Orwell, uh, you know, HG Wells conversation, you know, like scaring you about aliens and so on. So I think that's kind of where I left it for a long time. But I, I think that the foreign policy implications were very real at that point for me. If it put it, it put a fine point on it, like what's this going to mean for our lives? What's it going to mean for the world? And that's really where I left it, I think, you know, and I can't really say where it shifted for me, but it was really honest. I've said many times cannabis that kind of opened that door for me. And then weirdly enough, kind of went back to everything else. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, even still to this day, you're like, that guy was not real. Oh, he was an MK ultra guy too. Oh my God. What's what is real? You know, that's kind of where I'm at today. <laughs> another thing I want to add too, just because the, there's another really strong similarity with all these topics. Okay. C 11 COVID is that during the moment or soon after the event, if if one of us question it, the the amount of emotional reaction we would get was very similar. Like people forget the 9-11. Like I remember just questioning that maybe there was some fuckery going on or it could possibly be let happen or whatever. And people would just get irate. Like the I like they couldn't comprehend that somebody could be so evil to possibly have foreseen it happening happening and let it happen or the fact that they could even like had a hand in orchestrating it or whatever it's like it was very similar to like the covid era where you couldn't even question the vaccine or how dangerous it was people would just get super emotional and it did take a lot of courage to be that person who was or courage or maybe be really dumb to bring it up bring it up in public around friends if uh you couldn't be a Sikh they yeah. were beating up Sikhs Ricky if you were in upstate New York or on the subway you let your beard grow out you had a hoodie on something like that they would have snatched you up like people were just I mean, they were insane for a a while it was a good while and you like, know what there was crazy like to that point is that it took me so long to realize they people would say like they would never do that they would never do that and, and it took me a long time to realize somebody did it 
Like you're just saying you don't believe an American would ever do it, but you definitely believe somebody would do it. I just always thought that was interesting. Yeah, you know, I also wanted to say when uh, I, a lot of you have interviewed Kathy O'Brien and uh, the guy that saved her life, Mark Phillips, knew a lot about a lot of this stuff. And he was very, very uh, adamant that these trauma events are planned to distract us, make us very, very easily manipulated, suggestible, and that what is really going on at the time of these events, including the murder of JFK in wide open in the public, Oklahoma City, 9-11, uh, many of these things that have happened over the years, that there, there, there's something else going on at the time that is really what they're dealing with. They do these trauma events to totally distract us and uh, manipulate us and, man and manipulate the entire society and the masses at one time for whatever Oklahoma bombing, I mean, um, the uh, Austin bombing. So it's it's just interesting how twisted it is, because I also always I don't know how many of you, um, I think a lot of you know about that project for a new American century document that came out in 2000. I mean, that, that basically says for us to take over the world militarily, like Darth Vader seems like they wrote it, we're going to have to have a Pearl Harbor. And then and we know that they wrote the Patriot Act two years before Chertoff and Biden was involved in all of them. It just seems like every one of these giant events that are so traumatizing to the nation, something like that is going on. And, and it just and then you say, oh, it's conspiracy. Well, you know, how many times? It's a conspiracy. It's really totally sick and depraved. But I just put that PNAC document together with the, the need to distract and manipulate. And then that, of course, Wesley Clark uh, speech about when he talks about Rumsfeld saying we're going into all these nations and then looking at them and seeing that we have. It, it's very disturbing. You can add to that, too, that and Donald Trump in 2018 also said dollars. that there was. Oh, I'm sorry. Was somebody else talking? Was that me? Well, I just said Donald Rumsfeld saying that they're missing oh, 2.3 uh, trillion dollars. Yeah, I don't know if can you hear me. I just said yeah, Donald Rumsfeld also yeah. said the day before that they're missing 2.3 trillion dollars. Yeah, right, right. Sorry, your volume was low. I just didn't hear you. But I heard you on the last part there. Well, I, I was just going to say that Donald Trump in 2018 also also kind of floated the idea that well, we you know we you know we 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 need a large kind of event like a 9/11 or Pearl Harbor bring the country together, but hopefully we don't need that. Was kind of how we floated that. That was 2018 before COVID, and the, well, the document it, you're referencing is uh, "Rebuilding America's Defenses" from the PNAC Group, and that's that. It's the, the way that they framed that was like we we to maintain our military preeminence or of, right. of, of the of the United States, we need something like that to bring people together. And then just like we just pointed it out, we didn't make it happen. It's like God, <laughs> I know. So well, and Mel brought up the the 1995 omnibus counterterrorism bill that became the Patriot Act. You got if you remember though, the reason that that thing even came about was the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And well, so it's which they have proof like was a CIA thing. Did you ever hear that Imad Salem? being interviewed as being inside the cell. He was talking to his handlers, like FBI handler or whatever. And he said, you said there was no, uh, that the, it wasn't going to be live. And then somehow you got them a live bomb. Like what's wrong with you people. And I didn't get my paycheck and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if you people have heard that one. That's crazy. It's damning. Six it's, people died. It's yeah. damning. The, uh, the FBI informant, taped the, the FBI guy saying that you gave him all the material, all this kind of stuff. And it was so damning that CBS had to do like a report on it, but it didn't get any traction. 
Um, now they but, proudly point those things out yeah. today, right? That we we catch all the terrorists by giving them everything they need to take. You know, even if they don't act it out, we arrest them just before, and that's happened so many times. You know, even the New York Times wrote an article about that, right? That they yes, the 90%, terrorists. Yeah, yeah. right. That, but that's such an important point. Like the CBS News did that. It was one of the agenda because I know Ricky is like, what what are the agendas served? And I've noticed that with every major event, the news media gets shut down more and more so like jfk was a big one and then um 9 11 was a big one but if you just compare that world trade center bombing in 93 versus 9 11 in 2001 cbs news did put that out there and i feel like after 9 11 that wouldn't happen and another big turning point was the parkland was when the internet shut down after parkland i feel like let me chime in on the omnibus uh, bill of 1995 what i found out from um uh, the investigation work of the bombing committee is that a, a, I think there were about 70 victims, family members and survivors from the bombing. They actually went to Washington in the fall of 95 and it, it failed in the Senate and Bill Clinton was furious. He hit the roof and uh, he thought that bringing the people before the camera, you know, ha having them sit in the gallery in the Senate would uh, do the trick. It didn't. And I thought, man, how insidious is that? You're bringing these people that lost their, their family members in the bombing to try to, you know, get in good graces with the Senate. And it just, it felt, it, it blew up in his face, excuse the pun, but that's my uh, my imp input on that. Hey, Chris, while we're talking about agendas after events, what what agendas would you say was uh, the, the most obvious things that came after OKC? Ricky, before well, we go forward, I don't think Miriam or, or, some, they, they, or Courtney got a chance to tell their stories. Yeah, I don't ahead. know if you guys wanted to do that first. Go ahead. You're Ryan. Should I go? By the way, first I'll say I'm really happy to be here and happy to see your faces. A lot of you are doing, all of you are doing awesome work. So I'm happy to be here. Um, I was uh, just, I was in Los Angeles and I had just quit working for MSNBC and I, I was pretty appalled coming from Montreal, Canada, after a year of covering the news and at, at NBC, you know, just above where the uh, Jay Leno used to to tape. So I was working for a British TV company and, and still, I guess, enamored with, with Hollywood. I, I, for a short time, had a, a gig for a, an online magazine kind of equivalent to, to the Hollywood Reporter. And I was the... TV editor and my boss took me into the hallway and he's like, look, if you're going to cover TV, you got to get a TV. So I had quit that job too and got rid of the TV. So my, my new boyfriend across the street told me that uh, the towers fell and I was listening to Alex Jones and NPR and then went on to work for the Sierra club for a segment covering the first responders and their all the shit that they inhaled and uh, the lack of help that they were getting. I interviewed for Zeitgeist and yeah, I was listening to Alex Jones. So I, I feel like I was from the get go. It was like the, this something, this is an inside job, something, but I didn't understand the full scope of the evil or the fact that all of these false flags kind of like build on one another, build on one another to get momentum to their goal. Um, and since the last show, looked into the anthrax letters and this Bruce Ivins anthrax scientist from Fort Diedrich that they pinned, pinned him as the, the mailer, but he was already dead. And that was the like 
brought in the second half of the Patriot Act. So what else did I want to say? Oh, yeah. Regarding, we have to remember, yeah, Joe Biden went to Alaska, so he did nothing for today. And I feel like we were all kind of living in suspended animation, like there was just something tangible that, you know, we were never going to be the same as a as a nation. Uh, I recently befriended Ray Ray Hughes, and I just want to honor her. She was a first responder. Um, three of the doctors that have tried to detox her have died. Uh, she's been also targeted and censored. She talks about the neural dust and says that Dr. Judy Wood is not honored enough, that this is this wasn't just a, a Pearl Harbor, this was a Hiroshima because of all the toxins that that were, you know, exposed, that people were exposed to. So I think, yeah, that's, uh, that's my, where I was in Los Angeles. I'm curious about Chris's experience with this, because as somebody that was working on Oklahoma City, you're sort of already in that headspace of like having major questions about the official stories and the role of three-letter agencies and all this stuff. When this went down, what were your initial thoughts after the shock wore off? Well, some folks aren't aware that I actually attended uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison as a civil engineering undergrad. And two years into that, uh, I decided to basically pivot and get into film and photography and so forth, went in the liberal arts. But I, I took that CE uh, civil engineering experience with me, and I looked at those buildings, and I says, this is controlled demolition. I mean, we studied statics and strengths and moments of stress, all the way from commercial bridges to huge commercial buildings like that. And I thought, wow, um, how in the world did they plant explosives in these buildings? It would take you know weeks, if not months, to do that. To the point, and you have to evacuate. Nobody was evacuating. And I says, this is completely up. It's it's an inversion. It's like watching a really bad B movie. And uh, immediately I thought, wow, yeah, this is this is not right on so many levels. And then I saw my wife crying, and um, you know her being concerned about her former academy mates. And and then when I called the uh, the bombing investigation committee office up in Oklahoma City, I was still living in Fort Worth at the time. Um, I, I says, what's going on? And they said, yeah, we uh, we saw it on TV. And um, there were so many parallels uh, immediately. Just how the, the news cycle, how it was rolling out, saying the truth maybe for the first hour. And then it just went completely bizarre after that. They're saying stuff that made no sense at all. And who the hell is that guy with the Harley Davidson hat? You know, that famous clip. Where did he come from? Saying, well, yeah, the buildings came down, you know, in, in a the completely bizarre fashion. And I thought, okay, yeah, the, the, the gig is in and... Um, this is going to take a long time to unravel this. Yeah. Well, the anthrax, I know uh, Miriam brought it up, uh, a really good documentary on that topic specifically, American Anthrax by Robbie Martin. I think you'd still find it somewhere, but it, that that's really good. And that was another way of scaring the shit out of everybody. People forget that soon after 9-11 so it's like we, people were already afraid of every muslim that existed anybody who even looked muslim you know like people were in a panic we we created the other the same way that they turned the vaccinated against the unvaccinated the unvaccinated was the other you know so it's like any moral compass you you have goes out the window these are other types of people these aren't us and uh and the anthrax thing was same thing like we had code red code orange every other day it was code red code orange 
And psychologically, like that has an effect on you. Like you just want it to end. And if the government and the TV says, Hey, if we just invade these countries, we'll be safer. You're like, fine, just do it. It doesn't make any logical sense, but just do it. Same thing with the vaccine, right? It's like you, everybody's locked in their house. You're afraid. It's like everybody's going to die. Hey, once if you just take this vaccine and convince everybody else to get the vaccine, then this whole horror, this nightmare will end. And so it's, it's literally the same thing over and over again. You know, I know they use the term the great reset after the you know during the covid uh pandemic but really it's almost like they try to reset things after every one of these events i mean after 9-11 things will have never been the same and after covid things will never be the same and whatever next big event comes our way they will slightly change things so it's like every time the one of these events happen they just slowly you know just kind of, or just take a bigger step into the direction that they're pushing us in and all hegelian existence we're living in this hegelian they also justify going yeah. into iraq right after the anthrax you know you had right. Paul Powell shaking the little canister um with talcum powder <laughs> pretending to be anthrax and just but then they just. Oh, well, as somebody else pointed tell. out a moment ago, too, it's they they all build on each other. Like one one wouldn't be possible without the one before it, you know. And so it's it could very well be that these things are executed organically based on you know never let a good crisis go to waste. But it seems very clearly to me that these were all one after another, you know, like especially nine eleven, COVID nineteen, like. One, you, you know, the, what, what happened with COVID nineteen? The illusion therein wouldn't have been possible without the security state. You know, now the biosecurity right. state. So I, I think that's important to think about. You know, that they build on this and use the fear the whole way. Uh, Courtney, did you want to jump in and tell your story about your your original story? I don't think you got to do that. I think she froze. Never mind. <laughs> well, a lot of things happened after nine eleven um, that people don't can you know guys about. Hear me? Well, I was driving back from the Healing for the Ages conference. We can hear you. You're just frozen, but we can hear you. I'm sorry. Say that again. Oh, you're back. You're, 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 you were you're frozen, frozen for a moment. Very still. One okay. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. Good. So I was in New York. Um. All, it's so great. It's so interesting hearing it. Oh shoot. This is gonna. You be might want to turn your camera off, and just talk. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Courtney, try turning your camera off while you share. If you can hear us. I think we lost her. I just wanted to say that there was a lot of corruption after 9-11 that I don't know. I'm not sure wasn't involved in the whole thing. I have really good. Uh, oddly enough, I have very good friends that are very were are, are some are still alive, really high up in the mafia in New York. Mm. And I will tell you, there was a looting of that scene that people never really talked about with the steel and everything else. There was a whole bunch of crazy stuff that went on after that was never reported. And that, you know, seems to me something that was, should have been part of the story and never was. And, uh, you know, they, they had some minor trials, but the whole cleanup was a, was a giant cover up. I know that they were having these mafia guys go in there in the middle of the night and remove stuff like, straight up like crazy stuff was going on there was a giant cover-up after and, and all the they, steel they shipped back to china yeah they right after no no investigation that's why so 9-11 press for truth i so i'm giving all the listeners you guys have probably watched all these documentaries but i'm giving the listeners some homework 9-11 press for truth it's a classic because it's not a conspiracy theory pot or a, a documentary at all it's widows that 
had their loved ones pass away because of the event and just wanted an investigation. And you should see how much, uh, like, the investigation was complete horseshit. It was, uh, you know, it, it might as well be, you know, the Warren report. It, it similar, you know, thing where just, a, you know, they didn't really do a real investigation. All the, like uh, Miriam was saying, all the steel, everything was shipped out immediately. And these widows are like, you spend more money investigating Bill Clinton if fair than you did 9-11 and you know and and some of these widows voted for bush they just want and then henry kissinger was put on the 9-11 commission report initially they had a meeting with him and then they're like hey do you have any ties to uh to the saudi family by any chance the bin laden family and then of course he resigned and it was just and then there's the 28 pages that was redacted I mean, and then obviously Bush and Cheney wouldn't testify separately. They and nothing could be on record. It was just it. There's there's so much fuckery that even the most skeptical person, like a Brian Callen, would watch that <laughs> and still, you know, be like, "Hey, you know what? There's something there." And I we've come such a long way. It, you know, not to uh, reference that Rogan podcast again, but the fact that. Back in the, in the day, it was Eddie Bravo bringing up conspiracies and it was everybody against Eddie. And now it's Brian Callen trying to debunk, the, you know, the conspiracy. And it's everybody against Brian because like w- that's how far we have gone where it's like it's so obvious that you almost seem silly to think that like all these things aren't conspiracies. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Courtney, if you want to, if, if your connection's better and you want to share your personal story. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, we're pulled over and I actually have five bars now. So, um, yeah, so it's been really, really awesome to hear everybody's stories. This, like, at, between driving and just hearing this, it's very emotional for me. So I'm going to try and consolidate everything. I was there. Um, I remember it really, really well. I was on my way to work. Um, I didn't have my hearing aids in. The phone kept ringing. Apparently, I didn't hear it. And so then the intercom phone rang, which never rang you know i lived in new york building so the guy at the desk called apparently to tell me that my mom's been trying to get a hold of me for like over an hour and uh i was like well i'm really late i have to get to work uh you know he was like you have to call your mom and do not go into work um so of course i called my mom heard what happened immediately turned on the tv and about 10 minutes later uh, one of my best friends so i had a couple of friends who worked in the towers and one of them calls me and she says Courtney there's smoke coming out of the subway and she was always late and she was already late and she's like I don't know what to do I'm really late but there's smoke coming out of the subway and I don't know how I'm going to get to work and I told her don't don't go in don't go in I'm sure there's no work <laughs> your building has just been uh, you know it's just come down so she came over um, I later heard my friend who lived right behind me who also worked in the tower she had to run home like they walk down the stairs they were all fine so none nobody i knew directly was hurt um you know i i knew people like family members of people i knew um you know and loved ones but nobody i knew directly uh was hurt thank goodness but she said she had sneakers under you know she worked for merrill lynch and they were like you know you know what the ibanker hours are and so she said that she you know, kept a pair of sneakers under her desk in case there was an off chance that one day, you know, when she, you know, maybe in the middle of the night, she could get to the gym. She never used them the whole time she worked there, but she used them to run home. Um, 
So I was not awake at all. And, you know, I had so many people who would send me videos. Like I remember, uh, you know, someone sent me loose change. So like there were a bunch of people trying to make me aware of the potential that this was an inside job. I actually worked for, um, like shortly after I worked in the building that's not the towers, but Midtown that Silverstein owned. <laughs> so people kept telling me, you know, about that whole theory with the insurance and how they bought the insurance just before. Um, but my every time I start to talk to my dad about it, he would tell me how I was totally crazy and I was listening to crazy people. And I really just completely shut it down. But what was so interesting is with COVID, it was like all of these data points just instantly connected. And when Mel was talking about how these, you know, trauma, traumatic events, like, yeah, I mean, when you look into what they did with the Tavistock Institute and the trauma-based mind control, that's exactly what they were doing. They were testing it on individuals. They started with soldiers. And I think that they're not just designed for distraction and obfuscation. I think they're really designed, as we can kind of see it now, to create a control grid they condition us because we're so traumatized and you know as many of you were talking about the fear uh right when somebody's super fearful it's much easier to control them but i you know this is one of the things like I, I've, I've done you know parallels on covid and 9 11 i think there's so many parallels and so many of you talked about you know how many of them there are um but even like i even my mom finally the other day, because I feel like one of the silver linings with all of this, you know, I was not awake at all two and a half years ago. And I think one of the silver linings is that so many people are waking up. My mom even said to me a few weeks ago, she's like, Courtney, I think you might actually be right, even about 9-11. And, you know, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to know anything about it because I think people just have a really hard time thinking that, especially within our own government, any could anyone could be that corrupt, that evil. But the experience in New York was really interesting because in many ways it was actually, and it sounds weird to say, but New Yorkers have a very strong sense of pride in being New Yorkers. And there really was a, a tremendous camaraderie. You know, a lot of people didn't know what was going on and they just knew that there was a tragedy and that it was, you know, right in their backyard. And people really did rally around each other it was one of the most cohesive, supportive, you know, times I've ever experienced in New York. Uh, you know, and people were really grateful for all the people. Mm. No, do we lose her? Yeah. Well, in, in hopes you might come right back. I was going to say that. So, what a hopeful I don't know that where is. I oh, lost you Keep going. Keep going. Can you hear me? Yeah. It was the one of the most cohesive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the most cohesive uh, it, like experiences in New York that I had ever experienced where people were really, you know, were there for one, one another, reached out to each other to see what they could do to help each other. Um, you know, everybody was super grateful for the firefighters, you know, the nurses, all the people who were down there helping. Uh, so that's one of the beautiful things that I think, you know, I did see. But it, it's, it is really, it's just interesting to me in hindsight because I kept questioning it, but I had, I couldn't look at it. And now it's like so clear and you see the same patterns over and over again. And I do think that so much, a lot of you talked about the TSA and how, you know, things change when you flew. I grew up flying constantly and 
I that was one of the things that, that really tipped me off why I did start asking questions was just because it was so intrusive and it was such a change. And so why is everyone okay with this? You know, like we literally get molested every time we fly. And if you're not personally being molested, then your belongings are being molested. And I've always just found that so incredibly invasive, intrusive, and traumatic, really. Um, and I think we're just like conditioned to be, I, I've now decided the TSA's primary purpose is to create compliant, obedient, global citizens. <laughs> mm. And uh, yeah, it's just progressively, you know, it's the Fabian model of incrementalism. It gets progressively worse and worse. So I don't know what they're going to do next, but we, we've certainly seen all the plans and, you know, we there were lots of plans like drills right before 9-11 so i think they're going to keep going but they're going to go again with a, a mass scale fear terror campaign so hopefully people just don't comply this time and hopefully i know i i don't remember who was saying it before but somebody was saying that we we can't just let this go like oh they made mistakes and let it go and i i really agree because once you start to understand what happened with 9-11 it's really hard to unsee that and it's really hard you know, you, you start to realize this is their game. And hopefully when people start to see what happened with 9-11, they'll, you know, be more awake to what's going to happen in the well, future. I think so. one one thing that is kind of connecting dots is that they've watched the mainstream media over the last three years with the COVID situation expose themselves as pathological liars. And I think it's asking them, it's it's forcing a new segment of society to say, if this whole COVID narrative is a bunch of bullshit, and it is, then what about 9-11? So it's a logical, mm-hmm. reasonable jump. You know, another transformative event, another invisible enemy that's just going to get you unless you give up a bunch of your rights. And, you know, they, they start to notice the common denominator is that the media, that they're, they're riding shotgun all the time in all of these things, and that without them setting this narrative and constantly hammering you with fear and putting you in a vulnerable state and getting you to make short-term decisions as opposed to long-term decisions you should start to you start trading away things for safety and security and they know that and we they wanted us to go through that trauma it's the only explanation for why you see it all the time is cuz they want you to see it cuz it does something to you and it makes the state relevant because you're fearful and it keeps them in business. And all these things you start to, it starts to become real clear. If you understand, you know, the ins and outs of 9/11, not every last detail, but you know, if you understand it well enough, you, you there you can see their game a mile away. So, so let's say 9/11's a, this this inside job and then like Mel said, who really covered the cleanup job, the cover up. So if I have you know, a friend that is, she's like, I have 911 WTC syndrome, which are basically like Gulf War, high levels of toxic chemicals from the street, steel particles, dew dust, high levels of mercury level, cadmium, lead, um, plastics. I've been detoxing 20 years, caused kiz- kidney, liver, spleen, gallbladder damage. Um, and so this is someone that is not able to get her story out. They've s- taken down her documentaries and a lot of the people in the lawsuits or one one day I was helping her went on Pacer to try to find her lawsuit she won a million dollar lawsuit and then when she went to follow up 
they gaslit her and they told her she had never won. So I'm like, let me get on Pacer. And I saw all these 911 associated, a lot of Muslim names, a lot of suing of the government. And then she said, well, all of these people, I couldn't find her lawsuit, but she said all of the people on the lawsuit with her, which are sick, sick people. Well, she's one of the only ones that are alive. And then if she has doctors that can testify on her behalf and say, you know, not gaslight her and say, you, yes, you're poisoned from 9-11, clean up. Um, but three of them are dead. So I just want to honor her because there are people who suffered trying to do the right thing to clean up in this cohesive manner because I do remember it really, the New Yorkers really came together. Isn't that, it's fascinating to see how they reacted to COVID and, but they did come together. Anyone in New York can testify to that just like Courtney said. Yeah, and I I have friends who volunteered and they they experienced exactly what you're talking about for like I mean it's decades later and they they've definitely been poisoned. So I I would actually love to look at what what some of the detox things to send it to them. Maybe did you do episodes on that or something or write up anything I on it because I would send I, it to them. I'm waiting to I'm waiting to interview her, but it's all the same. The detox protocols from the heavy metals, like okay. I have. Sure turn people onto EDTA, uh, glutathione suppositories, anyone that wants to hook up, like I don't sell it on my site, but I have yeah. hooked people up. Like it's all coffee enema detoxing. But in her case, my, my friend, she can't even detox because I've seen the legions on her. She detoxes too quickly. They start oozing. She's had like more gallons, like fibers coming out of her. Yeah. Like she said, she, the, the organs of detoxification themselves are damaged. Well, I think the bigger problem is that we have, have we ever even gotten a full overview of what actually was, you know, like testing and what might actually be causing these problems. You know, that was what part of what got swept away. So we don't even know what we need to be detoxifying for, you know, and to an overlap. I mean, it's interesting how we can have something like East Palestine where they seem to just willfully disregard anything that might be happening. But then in Lahaina, they're about ready to glue over the top of everything because of things they are arguably saying are there but haven't tested for you know it's like clearly they really don't care about any of these things at all you know i and if you get to it i'd like to hear more about the neural dust that kind of conversation miriam i don't know if that's something you want to get into that's interesting to me i i thank you i because yeah you would know a lot better you've gone down this <clears throat> rabbit hole um sh there is a documentary that i sh i think i shared it with ricky um, that talks about the neural dust dust and also Dr. Judy Wood that talks about the neural dust, but looking at, so I've been looking at the anthrax letters and I know Ryan, you've done work on, on that. And I was, I was on a space, um, a George Webb space yesterday. And I just asked him around July, 2020, um, Pakistan, there was a secret deal between Pakistan, and China using the Wuhan lab to create a weaponized or look at anthrax yeah bioweapons for for anthrax and then i asked him about the anthrax letters and he we agreed that even though yeah i've i've covered for instance the proximal origins it might all be bs um but it's still good to keep track but that in reality what they used as a backbone wasn't wrecked g13 or with one that it's really a ferritin nanotech backbone mm -hmm which can't be found. So I wonder, 
you know what you think of that ryan and Courtney. that scares me where can you send me whatever i have so you're you're telling me there's a connection to ferret nanoparticles going all the way back to 9 11 is that what you're saying that you have evidence of that that's wild I do not have, I don't have evidence of that. I, I have yet to interview my friend. I mean, I met oh, her at the awakening tour, but she, she has a body of work to show the neural. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I, I definitely share. If, if you guys aren't familiar with the ferret nanoparticle direction, that's, I mean, that goes back a while. The Guardian even wrote about the magneto, they basically a vaccine that they were testing that using ferret nanoparticles could control the motions of. But it went all the way up to, I think, mice they were using, and they could literally control the motions of these animals. That's why they called it like the yeah. Magneto vaccine. They're literally working on a ferret nanoparticle universal flu vaccine right now. mRNA, yeah. the whole thing. And it, it might even be already being tested. That just terrifies That's me. part of why it, like, people's arms are magnetic. And the purpose of it is to drive it into the cell because... It's uh, if you yes. without the magne magnetic uh, nano ferritin particle, then it, it would the body would basically reject it. That's part of why they do the uh, lipid nano encasement, mm -hmm. and then they have this mag nano, sorry, magneto nano ferritin particle um, to help drive it. So it's a like the encasement makes it like shields it almost like a like a bullet case. It shields it, and then the magnet pulls it into the cell. Um, well, but yeah, they like are working the on lipid. that. Right? So That's so what the, the lipid, lipid encasement. The lipid encasement is what protects it, so that the body doesn't just, you know, disperse it and, yes. you know, basically attack it to dispose of it. Um, and then the magneto uh, nanoferritin particle is what helps shuttle it into the cell. Just, just be clear. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that's in the COVID injections. Just so, but that what but that whole dis discussion there is that's that's the platform system. That's the the lipid nanoparticle delivery of the mRNA. That's the platform with new spike pro new protein added, and that goes back to Charles Lieber and all that. But I don't want to get too far away from the 9/11 discussion. I just thought that was interesting. That if there's a connection to that, I just that just peaked up all my interest. You know, I'm like oh my god. I that's do want to. I want to jump on that a second though, because you guys are talking about does this stuff go all the way back to 9/11? And this is something that I've been thinking about when I brought up that my mafia friends that I know went there in the middle of the night and took steel while it was still being while people weren't allowed to go there and move that steel somewhere that never heard of again. Um, I think back to that and I wonder how long this current agenda is going on because I'm working on something right now with a couple different people that are really credible to me. And um, there is a seems to me, I don't know if you guys have seen this. This is full of conspiracy theory at this point, but we are we are all in that realm um, that when these natural disasters, quote unquote, or these uh, East Palestine or Maui or these blowing up of of um whatever's going on and these giant fires happen. I, 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 a friend of mine sent me some information about what happens after and how FEMA comes in, but so does a lot of other companies come in. And a lot of these companies are connected to AI and surveillance and climate, whatever. And they come in and this has happened and they're similar companies and they're connected with some of the insurance companies. And if you put them into like the weforum.org, a lot of them are partners of the World Economic Forum. And when they have all the lists of the partners that they have, 
when they're going into these sites after to kind of under the guise of we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. And they're, they're all these same companies. And I wonder how long this has been going on because it certainly has been for the last three or four years of these major fires or major uh, catastrophic events or whatever. FEMA goes in, but then a whole bunch of AI and climate technology companies go in too that seem to be the same ones over and over. And I wonder if, if anything, because certainly I was in uh, New York when they shut down the world on uh, March 15th. And we saw down during the two days, uh, two weeks to stop the spread, a full on surveillance crap being put in all over Manhattan. I mean, we already had them on the corner, but they were putting sensors under the street and then they're paving over sensors like they went full like we are doing smart city technology as fast as possible. I just wonder if a lot of this stuff that. I'm working on this this with a couple different guys and the science guy that comes on. Are these are these natural disasters being or you know or East Palestine or the other tra uh, train derailment or whatever is happening in Maui? Are they then coming in after these and putting in the Internet of Body, Internet of Things technology to connect everything? And if so, how long has this been going on? You know, East it's Palestine. like the infrastructure had to have started a long time ago. East Palestine was going to be a smart city. They announced that before the ahead of the disaster. It was slated to be one. The, the, I didn't know. Wow. It was the area in Hawaii also. The, the yeah. short answer to your question is yes, but um, it's technology dependent. Like this is something that's been happening since I feel you know, like the railroad barons. Like this is just how you get rid of homesteaders. It's how right. you get rid of pesky people who want to hold on to their property. So that evolves with the technology over the years. But as there's been for the last century or so, the sort of, you know, continuity of government. We had there, there's been more and more of a framework for it. So the template exists in California. And I've talked about this a little bit before during a lot of the wildfires up until they scrapped the project altogether for the high speed rail system. All of the wildfires were in the direct path of the proposed high speed rail system. And then as soon as they scrapped it, they showed up different places um so it was a land grab in that way i mean maui i think we all agree is a huge land grab for ai yes because it was slated to be a smart city or a smart island you know but that's that's where we're at technologically but this is a very very old trick that the public private partnership has executed hand in glove for a very long time and add to that then, steve about Go ahead. Just real, real Go quickly, ahead. but just one point about that, the overlap to her point about is that happening in these places like Lahaina? I don't know if this is necessarily exactly what that might be, but I the, the researching SoilTac, SoilWorks, the company, the SoilTac product that they're going to be like spraying over this. I looked into this just to find out if it was like an East Palette, like going to be dangerous, just unhealthy, and was blown away to find out it's a, it's a DOD nanotech development now that doesn't have to mean like nanobots but it's nanotechnology they employed to make this and they originally designed it to be sprayed in they they tested in iraq and afghanistan to stop the dust from the, the sand from flying up when it's a soil uh a stabilizer and so it's basically just What's this it called, cement, it's called it soil tac i did a, a, a show just on that like an hour long and it's they, it's a copolymer. They act they act like it's this glue, the water based glue. You look it up; it's not even remotely that. My point is that I don't know if that might be another way for this stuff to end up. You know, like again, just a theory. 
but it's it's still it's DOD product that has nothing to do in my mind with health or safety or stopping asbestos and lead from flying into the air. So it's like, what's it really for? I mean, it could just be covering up the evidence. That's part Maybe of it they're too. They're nanoforming this planet with their cloud, with the lettuce, with the. I mean, they're putting it everywhere in us, in the animals, in the vegetables, in the soil, and the clouds. Mm-hmm. They're nanoforming. I, I don't know what else to conclude. Well, I, I want to talk for a second kind of just about the malleability of the human psyche and what it is when you look more into trauma-based mind control and the various different ways in which that's been studied and then gradually sort of dissipated into the public, public at large through major events like 9-11 and all the various different time, smaller incidences, but every bit is important like we're seeing with Maui and the kind of like clearing of the landscape in order to reforge the world in the way that they want to make it. It's really important to understand that these kind of brutal things that we see come to happen to people, we're vicariously drawn to them. So it's where our attention goes. But the actual important thing is the peripheral effect on the psyche of the population at large. So that means that war is a test lab. The actual dropping of the bombs is not as important as the traumatizing of the people. Vietnam was every bit as much an experimentation at what you could do at back home, how many people you could draft, what you could send them out to, what you could get them to believe. It's important to understand that the stories we tell are a technology. So every different story that we use grafting to a particular bureaucracy or a particular technology has language sets that then bring certain differences kind of like how like when you use twitter they're like oh no we're not shadow banning you we're just diminishing your visibility something like that so it's sort of one of those things where they teach us a particular story which gives them carte blanche for human experimentation we sink into the subconscious so that we lock up in a fear response and then the vast majority of people just end up in lockstep so this is a long-standing formula and it's a passing of how we and our emotion as people have been mixed into a formula from one cup to another over generations, intergenerational criminal cartels. This is hundreds upon hundreds of years building the foot that gradually stamps down upon the principles which underlie the country of America. So this is, once you really study it, it's hundreds of years, you can argue thousands. You want to hear next Keith, you've done a, a really good job with your videos, the way you tell stories, and um, and Chris, you're you've been telling stories through film as well. I wonder if if we're talking about nine eleven, if somebody were to ask you to, if there's a way for you to kind of summarize it to somebody in a couple of minutes, somebody that might have questions about mm-hmm. it, for, with your filmmaking background, you tend to sort of boil it down to the important points. Like, what would you tell somebody? Where would you start with somebody? I, I would say it's, it's a state-sponsored uh, terrorist act on a, um, a cataclysmic level of um, where we use it. How we here, when I left the small production studio in Fort Worth, I was working on biographical documentaries, training videos, uh, industrial videos, and I re- I'll never forget this. And it ties into your question. Um, I turned in my two-week notice, and I told my boss, I'm moving to Oklahoma City. I got this chance to work on this great feature-length film. And he says, look, take a bookend. Uh, you have to have cases that happen before and after. And I look at 9-11, just like some of the other folks in this discussion, it's incremental. It's it's trauma-based. And I just tell them, state-sponsored, um, there was a, um, it, to get us into the Middle East, not to save us from terrorists, but to get us in there because we had national interest, oil, wealth. And it all boils down to what's it going to take for our 
us as a society or a country to survive and stay one step ahead of the competition, regardless of, of the body count. They're, the people that plan this thing have absolutely no regard for the sanctity of human life. If they did, they wouldn't have even remotely thought of even pulling it off. I mean, my God, what, 3,200 people, boom, just gone into the, the, the era after. And Charles Key, one of our consultants and the state rep that helped us on the Obama committee, he says, you have a group of evil geniuses, whether it be 20 or 200, that thought this stuff out probably 20 years in advance. And they just were ready to greenlight it. When did it fit into the narrative? When did it fit into the groove or to that timeline of that week, that that day and that that hour and that second to, to have it go? And it was that morning at 8.30 on, on 9-11. So that's it's it in a nutshell for me. And, and there's some, some some other similarities with all these events. You know, one thing that we would constantly hear when we would try to open people's minds to what happened during, you know, these historical events is like, why didn't some somebody would have said something? You can't keep a conspiracy from everybody. And the common theme with all these events, I mean, if you look at JFK, if you look at OKC, 9-11, COVID, there's always whistleblowers. There's always people who say, hey, I have a different story than the mainstream narrative. And what happens to all of them? They're silenced, right? I mean, even if you want to go to recent history, like look at, a, you know, if somebody looks back and, and says, hey, if COVID wasn't that dangerous or if the vaccine w- uh, was dangerous, why didn't somebody say something? Why didn't doctors speak out? And it's like, well, they did. And they were all banned and censored and demonized. And just like during 9-11, everybody, you know, every whistleblower, uh, James Corbett, who I invited but couldn't make it tonight he you know he's done some amazing work on 9-11 and you know all the mysterious deaths around the okc um uh you know investigation and whistleblowers 9-11 you know all all these and obviously jfk there's tons of mysterious deaths and just disappearances so uh people do speak the problem is those voices are censored that those aren't the people that they're interviewing and just like the the footage that they show right they don't ever show you the footage of the people who are there and 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 talk about hey i heard bombs in uh the towers or i heard this or i saw that it's like they only show footage of things that help mold the mainstream narrative and and not any alternative narratives i just got to watch richard gage's presentation um in the audience after uh, on Saturday, and it's like yeah, I, I'm watching. I'm like halfway through it, and I'm thinking like, like how can you sit through this and not have serious questions? And what about it? the presentation in A Noble Lie, which was fantastic, by the way, of the the retired demolitions expert who made it very clear that OKC could not have been brought down in the way that they were told. Right, General Parton, I head of the Pentagon Armament Lab. Uh, let me share a quick story. Uh, it was one time I got to visit him at his home in Alexandria, Virginia. And this guy's ahead of the Pentagon Armament Lab for 18 years. Billions of dollars at his disposal, worked with over 50 people. And um, we sat down at his dining room table. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. We just got back from Fort Belvoir having dinner. His wife had gone to bed. And I, I swear, guys, it was like, with even with my engineering background, two years in college, it was like sitting across the table from Einstein his level of expertise, and you could tell the wheels were spinning. I mean, it was like he was in hyperspeed just trying to explain in the layman's terms, seven pages of legal pads, notes on both sides. And uh, he says, Chris, he looked at me and he says, I blow up small cities in the middle of the White Sands Missile Range 
and have done so for 18 years. They're using cruise missiles, stuff that we never even heard of, top secret out there in uh, south central New Mexico. And he says, I know damn well we took that building down. And it wasn't a truck full of info. And then we went through and I, I told him what I found out from the bomb squad, the Oklahoma County bomb squad. One of the medics and two of the officers came forward and they asked not to be interviewed on record, but they told us what, what they found in there. There were 23 devices in the building. Three of them have gone off. And I, I went through that with General Parton. He says, oh, yeah, this is where they were placed. And son of a gun. It was between the drop ceiling. There, there's one corner of the building that had all of the electrical conduit, the, the plumbing, everything. It was utility closets on every floor. It was common. It was just so much easier to set up your HVAC, your your uh, baseboard heating. And all of those closets had the charge on the the, the common com the column. And it was A47. Remember, we got the set of blueprints from GSA out of Fort Worth. And General Parton walked me through that. And he says, yeah, the key structure on A47 is if you can imagine a six-foot section of this column, which is almost three and a half feet in diameter, turned to chalk dust just like that. And he says, that's not blast wave attenuation from, uh, you know, from a, a, a truck bomb 47 feet away. And what? And so he said, yeah, he, he explained it to me. And I, I was just dumbfounded. I, I remember flying back that next morning from Reagan International just – it's like, wow, how do we how do we get this into a, a, a palatable form that the viewer can actually uh, understand what's going on? Well, hey, Chris, hey, I got a question oh, for yeah. you. One of the <laughs> oh, sorry, Mike. So I was oh, going to say, gonna... if you're talking to a, an insider, a government insider who knows this, mm -hmm. other people know this within the government, and yet nothing happens because they're afraid to say something, or the this goes so deep and so like. It's it's such a, a monumental task to speak up about this, so nothing ever happens. Or what's his opinion? He he flat out knew, acknowledged that it was an inside job. Uh, so, but he just sits on his hands. No, 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 no. What he did was, in fact, that's a very good question. A lot of people don't know this. General Parton spent over six thousand dollars of his uh, out of his own personal uh, account to uh, write up a report for every member of the U.S. Congress and every member of the Senate. He gave them a detailed 42-page report on what happened in that building. He even sat down with Danny Deffenbaugh, who was a special agent out of the Dallas office, and two of the lead prosecutors under Merrick Garland. That's a whole other discussion for another time of our current attorney general and how he, he completely uh, derailed this whole investigation. And uh, anyway, so General Parton sends a report to every member of Congress in the Senate, and only one responded, and it was his local congressman from Virginia. Everybody else ignored him. So it wasn't like he didn't try. He did, you know, he, he did the yeoman's effort and and tried to put his best foot forward. Danny Deffenbaugh, that special agent in charge, was sitting in his living room at his, his dining room table there. And in uh, the cocktail table went through the report and they completely ignored it. They did, had, did not enter any of that information in the federal trials because they knew it would torpedo their narrative. It would be a broader conspiracy and they'd want to go that route. What we found, there were 12 to 18 people involved in that case. McVeigh was working for the CIA. And I can tell you sure as shit right now that I'm sitting here talking to you guys. Terry Nichols was framed. They manufactured the evidence. And they prosecuted him on that manufactured evidence. It was horrible. Absolutely horrible. He should not be in prison right now. What? Somebody I have a question about the uh, one of the more like peculiar parts of the OKC story that I don't know a lot of people know about. And it was a big red pill for me is the, the Eglin blast effect study. Have you yes. looked into that at all? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How that just like it's the U.S. government, the Air Force, that looked into it and pretty much debunked the whole thing. But 
Well, that was actually done at uh, Eglin Air Force Base, which isn't too far. It's it's up on the Panhandle, about a seven-hour drive from where I live. And uh, it was General Parton went to West Point, and it was one of his classmates that was actually base commander there. He asked his his friend again. He he shelled out over General Parton shelled I think over twelve thousand dollars on that test, and um, they they ran it and they said, yeah, there's no way that uh, what the the official uh, government narrative just wouldn't stand up on the the blast wave attenuation, the amount of charge it would take. In fact, they over-engineered this building on the airbase, and they um, they they had less on the. Uh, it, it was basically the inverse where. They used more charges, and it still didn't do enough damage uh, compared to what o- happened in Oklahoma City. So it clearly proved the official narrative was complete crap. So yeah, that, it was it was it was viable, but the FBI, of course, they just lie about it. Now, here's another thing, and this is something that I stress on all of my interviews. There were a lot of good people in local, county, state, and federal law enforcement that literally were stumbling over themselves through emails, through phone calls. They're sending us documents that without return addresses, saying please. Get this information out. We can't do this because our pensions are, are in jeopardy. Our families are being threatened. Their careers are threatened. So there is the good side also. There's the white hats and the dark hats, for lack of a better term, the black hats. And there was the white hats who were helping us out on this. I, I, before we move any further, I just want to make sure that people listening don't miss the importance of what you said before that, though. Like, that kind of blew my mind, actually. What you're, The idea that this report went out to everybody Yes. And nobody did anything like that's such an important, simple point for people to wrap their minds around why I think our vote doesn't matter, why I think that the government's completely corrupt, like the reality of how completely corrupt that shows us everything is. At the very least, people are unwilling to do anything when the information's in front of them in a position of power. Like, why do you know it makes you feel helpless? Not that that's how we should feel, but that's kind of crazy. And then the point you said about being framed and I just think that's crazy like we i think we, we should focus on I, that for a second this is one other thing guys let me add to this real quick when i talked to general parton about the reports and he he told me and here we are we're almost up till four in the morning and i remember i had to catch that flight at eight o'clock but i there was no way i was going to bed i mean i was just on adrenaline just listen to this he says chris there were only two times that i stood up all night and his wife chastised him remember the next morning he didn't go to bed till almost eight o'clock to take a morning cat nap he said the other time that he only stayed up overnight was to, I couldn't believe this. He was ahead of the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War. This guy, it, I mean, if if he was the, the military's gentleman there was, he had so much respect even from his adversaries in, in Russia. And uh, and so much so that he was asked to be on the, the um, what do they call it, the uh, decommissioning of the nuclear warheads. Anyway. He, he actually did the master plan for the Tet Offensive to make sure that there was a minimum civilian casualties and that he always stayed within the rules of engagement. He was not going to have the U.S. military under his watch be caught on Geneva Convention violations. And the only other time he stayed up was to write those reports for the Oklahoma City bombing. That's how much his heart was into this. I I mean, to, to this day, I still get teary-eyed. You know, he's passed away a while back, but probably one of the... You know, between him and, and Dr. Uh, Frederick Whitehurst, the head of the FBI crime lab, and uh, the doctor that uh, de- the uh, designed the neutron bomb, uh, they were our expert uh, consultants on this film. Hmm. That's just incredible. Yeah, you it know. is. Anyway. I don't know if you saw this. Since, your, since the noble lie came out, Donald Sockleben was 
speaking of Merrick Garland on the team, he was a bomb expert on there. And he, I guess when the second underwear bomber was coming around, he just blew the whistle that it was an MI6 agent. And they arrested him for, I think, kitty porn on his work computer. (laughs) But yeah, I put the article in there. It's a New York Times article from 2013, Donald Sockleaf. And so they, anybody who did push back on that has, had not been heard from since. Another similarity with all of them was, uh, you know, and this is just how, how little they actually care about, uh, innocent bystanders. I mean, the first responders for 9-11, they were told that the air was safe to breathe. A bunch of them got cancer. A bunch of them got sick. Uh, same thing that's happening in Hawaii, right? They're, they're lying about the air quality. And I mean, it just to, to hear those stories about those people who, you know, went there out of the kindness of their heart put their lives on the line to do what they thought was right and then the government's like yeah the air quality's fine just you know go ahead no mask needed you know it's a and and then now years later you know a lot of them are dealing with cancers and and a lot of uh issues with like if their if their work insurance would cover it because some of them weren't even on duty they just went there on their own to help people and i and then even to see like i still get chills seeing the people jump out of those buildings like when i see those videos it's just like i couldn't imagine and you know, when you hear people talk about this, uh, sharing their personal stories of like hearing the splatters, like that's, and to me, when you see those videos and you hear these stories, like I can kind of understand why a person can't comprehend that evil that exists, right? Like that, that, that somebody could purposely do that or somebody could purposely let that happen because it just, I think it's an evil that just most people can't comprehend. But, you know, like we constantly say on this show, you know, since the beginning of man, there's been people and people want to control those people. And now is no different. The only difference is that, you know, they're doing a better job of convincing you that all the restrictions and the lack of privacy and all the control they're trying to have over you is for you. They're protecting you. You know, it's it's we're no different than, you know, Korea. The only difference is like, you know, just like the Korean people were, were convinced like, yeah, we don't have the Internet because the government is protecting us. That's all. You know, it's like same thing with China and all these other things. You know, it's like it's constantly taking away your privacy and your freedoms to protect you. And most of the time it's protecting you unknowingly from them because the thing that you're afraid of is them or at least, you know, orchestrated by them. Well, Ricky, you mentioned the uh, telling everybody it was safe to go down there. You know who did that? That was Christine Todd Whitman, the head of the EPA. And how was she rewarded with the governorship of New Jersey? Right. So you fall forward, right? When you play ball with this, when you work for Rumsfeld, like she did. Mistakes were made, right? We're charting a course forward. We can't dwell on the past. You know, people got sick. We killed some folks, you know? With with the anthrax letters, they uh, targeted um, a guy named Stephen Hatfield. And then he he sued them back and uh, he won. When I interviewed, when I was talking to George, George Webb, he's like, yeah, this was, that was an FBI high school play. That money that he won was his payback for being the fall guy. And then they went after Bruce Ivins. And when they said Bruce Ivins was responsible for the anthrax letters, but the guy was already dead because he supposedly OD'd on Tylenol with codeine. 
Um, so yeah, they, they get rewarded for turning the other way. And how much evil do we have to see in order for us to really wonder? Like, I, I give this analogy. It's like I eat meat. I mean, I'm, I eat organic meat. I'm aware that I'm eating a life, but am I evil? So what if we really are fodder for we're being harvested? Then my friend, my friend took his cow peanut today. Um, it's like common that sometimes the cows can have uh, a limp that their knees, something is wrong. And and he went and put the cow, loved the cow, fed the cow organic food and took care of it. But he went and he processed the cow. Is he evil? So I'm just, I'm just using that as an analogy because I, I just think we've come to a point where it's just outrageous, the, the recklessness and dis not caring about human life. Well, this I mean, you ask, but in all of the documentation that I've read from the WEF and a number of these other goons, they refer to us as human capital. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. This conversation about evil is very interesting, and it's fascinating because, in a way, you know, we're talking about it like, you know, they're doing something evil, and some of them are doing something knowingly evil. And then others, I think they truly think it's for their greater good, right? They think it's for the greater good of humanity. So, you know, from from their perspective, you know, it's no different than if you look at like, you know, the the history of eugenics and depopulation. It's not like, oh, we want to kill everyone just because we want to kill everyone. Yeah, some people have that mentality, but there are people out there who are like, no, no, we're doing this because we're it's for the greater good of humanity. Like eugenics was for the greater good of humanity. Sterilizing women who have a history of sicknesses or whatever, like that's for the greater good. Oh, I'm not evil. It's for the greater good. It's an important dynamic that yeah. I think really plays people, you know, right? Where it gives them the excuse to see evil and yet go, oh, but it's not though. Experts say, you know, like that kind of thing where we're hearing, no, don't, don't listen. Don't look at all the information, the FDA or the EPA or whoever talking about, they say everything's fine, you know, and that's, it's in, people take the bait or they take, rather they take the excuse because they don't want to admit to themselves they made a wrong choice or they gave their child something that may take their life down the line, you know? Um, I'm going to have to jump off here in a second, but I want to say one positive note about what Courtney said that overlaps with what Monica said, which is interesting because, you know, early on it was, you know, that I just could, I can't believe that American, American, American could do this, right? Where mm -hmm. I think that's one of the most positive things of all this. And even if it was kind of because of trauma that now, like you said, your mom is going, I think you may be right. And now she's mm -hmm. not acknowledging anything other than the fact that I think you may be right that this was, you know, an attack or a false flag mm -hmm. or the U.S. government was involved for no other reason than I think that she's become so aware of what we're dealing right. with right now, right? And so it's this, yep. they shook people out of their sl of their slumber, you know, and they're now just acknowledging these things are possible. These people are crazy murderers, you know? It's like that as much as it's terrifying is a real positive thing, I think, that people are seeing it, you know? Well, I Let's. We're gonna start the wrapping up process, and I know you need to okay. drop off. So why don't we start with you, Ryan? Why don't you uh, mm -hmm. tell everybody where they can find the Last American Vagabond? I always tell people that if you're getting your news from T Lab and you're getting it from Unlimited Hangout and you're watching AM Wake Up, it's like living in the future, like nine to eighteen months. That's how I view it. Like all these things wind up coming true eighteen months later, and you go and and you guys are like, we were talking about that two years ago. So anyway, <laughs> plug away. 
Well, thank you. Appreciate that, man. And I think everybody here is doing doing great work and and really kind of the you know the tip of the spear right now on on a lot of this stuff. And you know whether we see that or feel that right now, I think looking back, we're going to see that. Right. I mean, I think we're already seeing that from the beginning of COVID to now, like Charlie's pointing out. But uh, just check us out on the last com for everything. You know, that's that's our hub right there. Scott runs the Substack. We got that. You can check out as well. There's a, you know, a lot of ways to support us, but really just keep supporting the independent media, guys. That's all that really matters because this right here is what we need. So I really appreciate you guys having me on. You're doing outstanding work, Ryan. We appreciate you. Um, let's stick, Thanks, stick with Scott. Scott, uh, what's happening with Rebunked? Oh, wait, Scott, if you don't mind, if everybody has a couple minutes, I know Monica had something she wanted to share and T has something he wanted to share just before. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I, just, I didn't. Sorry, know. I might have jumped the gun. No, I'll talk fast. No, it's past 530, but I just, because we were acknowledging people, I don't, I never hear anybody talk about Beverly Eckert. She was a 9-11 widow and she died in oh, 2009. Yeah. And I, I've used to be afraid of flying. And then when I read the stats, I'm absolutely not afraid of flying anymore because basically U.S. run commercial jets have almost zero fatalities. I would say in the last 15 years, the few people who have died, like I think even the stories are sketchy, but she was one of them. And I think she died by haystacking, which is they took the plane down with 50 people in it. So you wouldn't know it was her uh, who was the target, but she had died about a week after she met with um, Obama and she just wanted a 9-11 proper 9-11 commission and she was famous for writing this is right out of wiki my silence cannot be bought where she says i've chosen to go to court rather than accept a payoff from the 9-11 victims compensation fund and said i want to know what went so wrong with our intelligence and security system that a band of religious fanatics was able to turn four u.s passenger jets into an enemy force attack our cities and kill 3,000 civilians with terrifying ease i want to know why 210 story skyscrapers collapsed in less than two hours and why escape and rescue options were so limited the victims fund was not created in a spirit of compassion rather it was a tacit acknowledgement by congress that it tampered with our civil justice system in an unprecedented way so i say to congress big business and everyone who conspired to divert attention from government and private sector failures my husband's life was priceless, and I will not let his death be meaningless. My silence cannot be bought. And then she met with Obama, and then her plane blew up. Right. Like a week later. Right. So th- there are a lot of threads that came up today about acknowledging people and what happens when you yeah. speak. So let's just, I feel like, you know, why why don't the 9-11 families speak out? Well, I think, you know, we know why. There's a lot to know about this event. It's so you could study it for years and years and never get to the bottom of all of it. And, and Beverly Eckert made it in my first book. I remember that uh, clearly. I mean, again, like maybe, maybe it was an accident, you know, but like tired of a bunch of these coincidences happening. So you, uh, Tease, you want to say something? Yeah. You mind if I jump, I've got to go too, but oh, I, sure. I Chris. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's all right. The Oakland, I want, I want to, I'm going to do a, sh- a call out actually, not a shout out, but I'm going to call them out on their bluffs. The Oklahoma City National Memorial, I know this for a fact, was used as a, basically, um, a, a reference point as a blueprint for the 9-11 memorial. A lot of the staff from the Oklahoma City National Memorial went to New York months in advance before the memorial was open there, and they repeated their same efforts at Pentagon. So it's, for, I'm not being callous here, but it's like the blind leading the blind. The, the folks in New York, under good intentions, took the, the lead and what they did in the corruption in Oklahoma City and replicated in New York and also at the Pentagon. That's the worst 
And that's the most disrespectful and most criminal thing I think that could ever be done in remembrance of these these victims. And I'm still going to call out to Director Kerry Watkins. You're lying and you, you're you a pathological liar, you're a sociopath, and your staff, either by complete ignorance or, or with malice and forethought, continue to corrupt this case. And it's absolutely disgusting and you need to be fired. But it's that's perfectly all- on brand. You know, I would expect nothing less. Yeah. It's, it's correct. Anyway, thank you, Well, guys. Chris, where can people find you? Uh, freemindfilms.com. And, awesome. Uh, Ricky, thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with all of you. It's, it's been a blessing to be on here with you. Thanks so much. We're, Chris. I love your films. I mean, they're thank really they're, they're eye-opening. Um, thank you. Now, Scott? Oh, we Sorry, still- I think Tease, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now yeah. tease. Yeah, sorry. Tease, tease. So I just wanted to briefly talk about activism and what it is to try and bring attention to this sort of thing. And I was a 9-11 truth activist for a number of different years. And what I would do is I'd wear an American flag as a blindfold wearing a shirt that said 9-11 was an inside job. And I'd stand at attention for between six to eight hours with DVDs in front of my face such that people could take them at their leisure as they passed me. If you want to get a sense of people's reaction to that sort of thing, the stockbrokers and the police officers were the ones who either arrested me or told me they were going to go home, get a gun and shoot me in the face while the family members and the service members who had come home from the illegal and unnecessary war saluted me and thanked me for what I was doing. And that gives you a sense of the division of people. Those who make their money off of perpetrating these injustices have a tendency to hate the truth and those who speak it, whereby those who have been deeply affected by it, they very much appreciate those who go out there and represent it. So what i have is i shared it with ricky it's a video of the 10th anniversary of us being picked out of the crowd of people who were in attendance to pay our respects that day and we were wearing like shirts that said things that were very clearly visibly oppositional to the narrative story that we were being told and because it's a controlled photo op the nypd is then tasked with the responsibility of clearing out the vermin so they had pen set up blocks away that we were led to and put in and told that we were only allowed out if we removed our garments that just gives you a sense of how much even if you're an activist you'll be cleared off site it's like the show arrested development where they have that like free protest zone and it's it's a fence on an army site so no one can see you but you feel like you're able to get it off your chest it's that level of absurdity so it's one of those things where that's the situation we're in whether you're a family member being murdered because you refuse to go along with the story or if you're someone standing up and you're going to ground zero to try and speak to the truth and have other people hear it, this is a coordinated chain of obedience. It isn't a chain of command. Come time, there's a federal button that's pushed. The people that you think you know and love, if they're in uniform, they disappear. They become the uniform. And that's a scary prospect given the fact that we got a quarter million people working for Homeland Security given that the NYPD has a $6 billion operational budget annually, we're we're in a bad place for come time. They tell the story that silence is the only answer. So that's, that's just something I wanted to share. Well, I always appreciate one of the many things about you is that is your activism is that you're out there. You know, you get out, you put your money where your mouth is, man. You are out there interacting with other human beings in person. It's amazing. And I think you do outstanding work. And I love when you put dressed up in the rabbit outfit as well and handed out flyers. I mean, I, listen, 
the message is worth it, right? It's worth try, giving it a shot. Let's try to connect with people different ways, you know, and I appreciate that about you. Um, can can you direct people to your 9-11 short that you made? Because I think it's really amazing. Yeah, for sure. So that's another thing that I do is I'm a filmmaker. And this is, uh, if you can include this in the, the show notes, I made a film called Blindfold, which is about a 9-11 widower and his preteen daughter coming to emotional terms with what it is to be confronted by this information. And it's only about 20 minutes long. And it is the kind of thing where you can sit down with your friends and family, not go into any of the details not go into any of the really painful information and just sit and watch a film that explores it in a non-confrontational way so that you can cry about it so that you can come to terms with the reality of it without having to directly face it and so that's that's a short film that i made when i was in film school living in new york it's also sort of an extension of the activism that i myself did because of the title blindfold and what the artistic significance of that symbolism is meant to represent is this the american flag as a blindfold is twofold one, it's that the American government is lying to us about the truth of 9-11. And the second is that our patriotism as Americans is keeping us from looking at the truth of 9-11. And that's the situation we're in. So if you want something that you can use as an outreach tool, check out that short film, Blindfold. It's really good. It's really good. I'm not just saying that, man. It's a really powerful film. And it's 20 minutes. You know, go check it out. Scott. Okay. All right. I have to second that. <laughs> Blindfold is a fantastic film. And if you guys aren't checking out Conspiracy Synergy, Tease's series, it's like some of the best stuff on the internet in this whole realm. Like I'm telling you, it's it's top notch. Um, well, thank you guys for having me on. Like, you know, I really appreciate the conversation. I'm Scott Armstrong. I got Rebunk News going. I got the Unjected show going. Um, Unjected.com, world's first unvaccinated dating site. Um, if you guys want links to all of my stuff, you can check it out at, and of course, The Last American Vagabond, uh, at, uh, check out all my links at, uh, libertylinks.io forward slash rebunked. Thank you guys so much. Much cool. Love. Thanks for being here. We always appreciate you. Steve, what's happening? Oh, hey there. How's it oh, going? Hey. I'm going to uh, talk to you this uh, weekend. You and Mel. You're awesome. my, you guys are my radio, my, my radio team this, this weekend on TNT. Heck yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a, uh, an incredible way to start my Saturday. I, um, I agree. Me too. But yeah. Uh, well, thanks as always for, for having me on the best ensemble podcast in the multiverse, hands down. Um, you guys are, are all just tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. I'm almost over my, my, uh, my I don't belong here yet. Um, Monday <laughs> through Thursday, 7 to 10 in the morning Pacific time on Rockfin and Rumble. You can catch me live. I've been very fortunate to be joined by Chris from the Rained Out Rancast while he's nursing a busted shoulder. Uh, Ryan Christian joins us on Tuesdays. Chase is joining us on Wednesdays. Texas Slim from the Beef Initiative is joining us on Thursdays. We are bringing actual solutions to the problems that the technocratic panopticon presents and we are finding ways to extricate ourselves from it every week uh you should get in amwakeupshow.com for everything thanks again you guys you're you're awesome well chris is my uh current interview this week on macroaggression so yeah we had him on we were talking about a decade of propaganda since the uh 
passing of the Smith Modernization Act of 2012, and we talked about all the lies in the media that sort of ramped up and the, how the information sausage got poisoned uh, during that time. Not that it wasn't already, but still how it got legalized. But I'm excited to talk to you this Saturday. And you, Mel, what's going on with the Mel K Show? Can you, you were just in Vegas, yeah? Yes, I was just in Vegas. It was uh, super fun, super awesome. I got to bring Roseanne Barr with me. So uh, we, nice. we went a little, we had a lot of fun. Uh, but um, yeah, I am. Uh, Mel K Show is, uh, is my hub. Uh, my main uh, platform is Rumble, but I'm everywhere that free speech exists. Uh, I uh, I never got back my Twitter. Like most people, I started over over there, but I, I don't think I'll last that long because I, <laughs> nah, I'm not a I'm not a censorship person. But I am a lot of places, and uh, I think all of you are awesome. I'm so proud to be here. I saw uh, Sam bring it up on a Rogan, and I thought, God, he should be jealous. He's not hanging out with us. So uh, I'm really grateful to all of you, and I wanted Monica to know I like what happened with your uh, with your bookshelf. I saw it the first day when oh, I had yes, nothing it's on. Been morphing. Now I think I, I haven't seen have it. It looks great. I need one of <laughs> it's those. It's too much. You look I much see. smarter than me. <laughs> but uh, themelkshow.com and uh, my show every night airs at 7 p.m. live. New show every single night on Rumble. Right on. Talk to you on Saturdays. Let's stick with yeah, Monica. What's happening? Awesome. So What's I just cooking? did a, a conversation with Anthony Raimondo, my favorite uh lawyer advocate during COVID and mm -hmm. he just blew my mind with what's happening with water in California. Like I'm out here and I'm totally depressed because of the drought and the chemtrails. And he's like, there's plenty of water for everyone. It's a policy issue. And it just folded into some of the stuff that I've read on the World Economic Forum website about uh, water. And I just thought it was a great show. People should check that out at Deep Dives with Monica Perez and um, monicasdeepdives.com for all the show notes. Thank you so much for always uh, or often usually including me. I'm super honored and humbled. We always appreciate your contributions to the show. Miriam, where are you going to be these days? Where are you going to be? I am going to be in South Beach. So okay. I'm moving this week. So I'll be staying in Florida and uh, looking forward to communing with the colleagues. Um, people can find me on MiriamHinane.com. And I have a weekly show called Truth Lives Here at noon on Fridays. This week, I interviewed Dr. Shiva. That was, that was fun. And I'm really grateful to be here. And people can also check out a detox protocol if you know anyone who's vaccine injured on MiriamHinane.com, along with a book on uh, Tavistock that's only $5,000 on Amazon. To just dovetail on what Tis was saying, you know, JFK wasn't just about killing a Catholic king, according to John Coleman. It was really about snuffing out something in the communal spirit of Americans. And, and I do think that's part of their uh, their aims here. So don't let them and, get the better of you. And 9-11 certainly did that, too. Hey, to Miriam, I heard, Miriam, I heard you have a pretty cool sub stack also. Oh, right? yes. Oh, yeah. Plug it. I have a sub stack called... Mary Hinane? I don't I don't know the I just am so focused on the content. Sorry, it's MiriamHinane.substack.com. Everybody check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please do. Thank you, everyone. Courtney, what do you have planned? You're always planning these cool events. What's next? So what is next? We are working on the cause fest. I think now we're looking, it's gonna be probably Orlando. We got our first sponsor. Um nice. so we're we're gonna start locking down the venue and the dates and line up more sponsors we're thinking it's going to be november 11th 
that weekend. Uh, but that's that's all in the works still. Um, I'm on my way back right now from the Healing for the Ages conference that Brian Artis and Dr. Group and uh, uh, Dr. Gianna Smith and uh, Dr. Ely did. It was awesome. Did a bunch of interviews there. I'm going to be home for a little bit because last month I was home literally five days out of the whole month. In the span of two and a half weeks, I did I did 30 interviews. Now it's been 40. <laughs> so I'm home for a little bit, which is great. Um, I was in Vegas. Uh, with Mel, we were there. Um, and then I'm going to be speaking at the next Reawaken America tour. Uh, so that's going to be my first time speaking there. And, when are the uh, dates? What's the dates? 13? That one, the, the Reawaken America. Yeah. It's a, uh, that's going to be, uh, at Miami Trump's Doral. And it's a, uh, I'm speaking on the 14th. So I think it's 13th and 14th, but I'm speaking at noon on what the 14th. Month? October. Pardon? Of what month? Oh, sorry. Yeah. October. October. October, yeah. So sure uh, cool. Yeah, and, well, we'll see uh, you there. So yeah, we'll see you there. Thank you so much for having me. I love you guys. You're awesome. You're all doing such incredible things. So I'm honored to be here. And you can find my work. The best place to find me is at CourtneyTurner.com. I spell it like Courtney. It is Courtney, but it's spelled C O U R T E N A Y T U R N E R dot com. And you can find and that links also to the RebelsForCause.com, so you'll get all the updates on that. Right on. Uh, big thanks to our brother Sam, who couldn't be here. We appreciate his um, his shout out on Rogan Fight yep. Companion uh, this uh, this Saturday. Uh, check out Tinfoil Hat, of course. Conspiracy Social Club with Brian Callen. Brian still just can't wrap his head around nine eleven. It's okay. He's okay. got to do more shows with Shab than he does with Sam. So you got to like the the kind of you know, smoothing that takes place in that process. Mm -hmm. It's got to, it's just, I mean, it really has to be like Groundhog Day for him. Just every time he goes in there. It might be deeper than that. I love Callan, by the way. We got to get Callan on this show, man. Come on. What do we do? We just red pill him for three hours straight. Like he'll walk away. I feel like a pinata. (laughs) <laughs> so the, the jokes they were saying about the CIA and his dad, his dad was in, uh, he grew up in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia. I used to have Brian Callen's best friend growing up. Uh, his name's Hunter Motts, and he used to host the Brian Callen show with him. And Hunter Motts and Brian Callen, their dads worked together, and that's how they became best friends. They both grew up in Saudi Arabia. And I couldn't, I couldn't get a whole lot of information out of Hunter about his father or Brian's father. So, like these CIA jokes, I'm like, Hmm, you know, maybe there's something there because there, I couldn't get a lot of substance in regards to like what actually were they doing inside? Were they working for Aramco? Were they in Dahran? Because I knew a lot of people, Americans, that were doing that, and that was total. You know, that was like you know getting involved in the oil stuff. So it had it had a little intelligence feel to it. You have links, huh? Shill. Charlie's a shill. I'm kidding. Yeah, my boarding school buddies. Well, they ended the they end the schooling there in Saudi Arabia after ninth grade, so they have to figure out something to do with them. So they send them off to boarding school all over the world. So every boarding school's got a bunch of American Saudis that come in. I we had a half dozen. So that's that's what like if we're still on YouTube, that's what the YouTube comments would say. I would say, oh look, Trump. oh yeah, oh I'm sure yeah. a shell because everybody's a shell. But yeah, um, no. yeah. so that yeah that that is interesting. I, We'd like, love to have Callan on, though, right? Oh, he's awesome. We, I, I love Callan. He takes a beating really well. Yeah, he does. <laughs> What's up with you, Ricky? Since we're uh, talking, 
What's going on with the ripple effect? Oh, and like I said in the beginning of the show, please, people, go out and support the people that come on the show every other week when we I almost said every week every other week when we do the show we have amazing guests everybody on the show has done amazing work for a long time uh I mean Mel Kay I mean she's just friends with Roseanne no big deal right I mean Monica has been interviewed on Jim Brewer's show on the uh you know which is huge obviously Tease was on Corbett before most of the listeners even knew who Corbett was he's being interviewed on there I mean Vanishing of the Bees one of the best documentaries ever by Miriam I mean everybody on the show has done such amazing work I mean Steve's friends with Kurt Mezger. I mean, they just talk every once in a while, like it's no big deal. I mean, these the the people who come on the show, like we're I know people are always saying they're grateful that we invite them on. We're grateful you guys come on. Like you guys have all oh, yeah. done amazing work. I mean, Charlie's a best selling author. Uh, you know, I mean, who who has time to write a book? I don't know how he writes a book. I mean, it's amazing. So I could barely read, never mind write a book. So it, everybody's amazing on the show. And I I want to thank everybody who comes on the show because Hearing the shout out on JRE obviously was a big deal for the host, but I, I, what I loved about it was that hopefully it helps everybody. And it, this it really has become a community. So, well, look, I mean, regardless of how people feel about Joe Rogan, he has he has made podcasting a viable option for a lot of people. Okay, he's he introduced it to a certain extent. You know, I mean, he was he was a a, a big he. You know, I I. I I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for him. So it yeah it was it was a uh, nice just to hear your name mentioned on there it was was cool. Not that anything you know not that it really necessarily means anything except that like I appreciate that you know the guys that have been doing this for a long long time back before it was like an you know a acceptable thing. And I think Joe's done you know I mean he's it's 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 a legendary show. It's a part of our culture that's like never going away you know so i don't know so i appreciate sam doing it just for what it's worth so thank you again sam it was it was cool and it was a shout out to everybody who's been on you have done wanted we're all yeah part of the yeah the crazies yeah it's all of you all of the people that okay. that have been on and and he and of course sam in a sam way meant that with love we're not crazy we're just perceived as we just are identified as crazy that's how he got it to stay in there <laughs> good point yeah. yeah he sold it well yeah so well, i i just want to say that i uh my 300th episode that i aired was with g edward griffin so he's like the oh, nice. og like red pill guy um, who kind of paved the way I think for everyone because everybody thought he was crazy forever. And that was I awesome. I got to interview him in person. That was, oh, yeah. Amazing. I, he had the unfortunate of, of being on a, have a, del, you know, a delay in Mexico city. We were saying going to an Arcapulco together and I had an hour sitting next to him in the airport where he couldn't go anywhere. And I asked him a million questions and he was such a good sport about it. And I always appreciated that because I, you know, but How like, when are you going to get a chance to talk to that guy? He's amazing. How, yeah, sorry. So I was asking Charlie, when was that? That was 2019, uh, February 2019. Yeah. Uh, and then amazing. I watched him speak. He's 92 years old and he's like sharp as a tack. Incredible. A, yeah. real ins a real inspiration. Yeah. That's cool that you had him for your 300th episode. He, yeah, that's amazing. He's been on. He's been on here. I don't know if you guys remember, but he he yeah. had been on before. And uh, yeah, I got to meet him in 2019 also at the Red Pill Expo in Hartford. Phenomenal guy. I mean, he obviously. You know what's crazy is how many people are talking about that interview that he did 
but nobody's referencing him. I'm like, will somebody please mention that it was Griffin who did the interview with the KGB guy, you know, the Russian and Yuri Bezmanov? Yeah, even Rogan has yeah. the video. Well, yeah. But I'm like, hey, how about giving uh, the the OG in the video a little bit of credit? Because he's I been- agree. When he's got Seriously. the '70s outfit on, you know, it, that's some good stuff. You know, that's part of that's part of um, you know that's part of some of this Im- important footage that we we see over the years that helps you sort of like try and figure out what's going on. And when you sort of hear the playbook from somebody that would know it, you go, "Oh shit!" Well, it's at least worth considering. And I appreciate that that work. And it's scary because when Yuri Bezmenov's talking about it with Ed Griffin, they're 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 obviously wearing like their disco outfit, so you know it's the late '70s, and they're talking about. <laughs> 40 years you know it takes 40 years to demoralize society and you're like doing the math you're like oh shit like, uh... that's now <laughs> you know that's like it's happening right now so it 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 all feels you know it's just a uh, uh you know important videos to watch and so uh great great get by uh having having him on he, he's fantastic. he was also way ahead of the big pharma thing i mean he was talking people that's one part he gets a lot of credit for like that's the- what red pilled him i asked him i was like so what that was my first question i said so how did the og red pill guy get red pill and he told me that it's like someone asked him to do an article on cancer and he started doing research and he was like this is not going to be an article this is going to be a book and he said that what the, the big thing that tipped him off was that he found out that Big Pharma is not allowed to cure anything. They're allowed to treat, but they can't cure anything. He's like, what? And he said that led him down the whole rabbit hole. And that led him to the bankers. One thing led to the next. But but yeah, he was totally ahead of the curve on that. And I thought right. it was just so apropos because it's very much, uh, it's kind of like what happened now with COVID. Like that woke a lot of people up. It's the Big Pharma corruption that led them down the all the other pathways so definitely og i mean the creatures from uh from uh jekyll island Island. his his interview uh i mean he's done so so many uh amazing things now let's get to midnight mike who was called midnight mike on jre how about that that's a big deal if only i had midnightmike.com that'd be great uh, uh somebody's scoring right now someone's selling t-shirts off of your back takes a lot of somebody has it already and it's not what you think yeah probably not <laughs> um it's a big deal like uh it's a it's overwhelming to have your name mentioned on the biggest uh talk radio show and uh that's what it is and that's the the power that uh, joe rogan has is that uh he made talk radio cool again and an effective viable medium for information um so it's a big deal and uh it's just it's overwhelming but you can check uh, me out and my co-host cratched and joe over at obdmpod.com or ourbigdumbout.com and it's just a it's a wacky fun time and uh, we have a lot of fun so uh thanks everyone i've got uh chris yannick from rained out rant cast as the guest uh, this week on macroaggressions i've got eric canori the following week he's a dude who wrote a book called pressure he sold 300 million dollars worth of weed over a 10-year period and he turned it all into gold and buried it and got arrested and negotiated with the feds to get out by giving them the gold so wow. they were like digging it up it's a crazy ass story i encourage everybody to to listen to it it's such a shame because weed is so legal now you know to to think that this was like something that you could go you know go to prison for a while for it was crazy so anyway it's a good interesting story thanks everybody for coming out we'll see you all later if you want to subscribe to the show 
Also, check out ConspiracySynergy.com. ConspiracySynergy.com is the place to be. He puts a lot of time and effort into his videos, and it shows. Love you guys. Peace. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Night, everybody. Koala. More than half the women in my administration are women. <laughs>